we're about uh, halfway through chapter 12. Uh, this chapter is called Knowing, Emptiness and the Radiant Mind. And uh, at the end of the last reading, we were uh, just got to the end of the uh, shorter discourse on emptiness, the Chula Sunyata Sutta. Even though emptiness was not the most frequent subject of the Buddha's teachings, it was plainly one that he saw to be of great importance. The following passages indicate the profound and essential quality that the Buddha saw in the development of the insight into emptiness and the need to encourage its realization in his disciples, both monastic and lay. So these uh, next two readings um, uh, talk about the, um, uh, the importance or the value of teachings on emptiness without really going into emptiness teachings themselves. So the first one is from uh, the Sangyutta Nikaya, section 20. This is called the Drum of the Dasarahas. Because once in the past the Dasarahas had a kettle drum called the Samana. A kettle drum is like a big um, uh, kind of a, a big drum that's shaped like a half of a sphere that they would uh, they would use as a, a um, have them on the back of elephants and use them as war drums. And they have them in in orchestras, what they uh, call kettle drums, to make those sort of deep booming uh, drum sounds. They had a kettle drum called the summoner. S u w m o n e r. So that which summons, rather than a summoner, as in a monastic. Yeah. <laughs> So you beat the drum and it, it tells people, wake up or go to war or something. When the summoner became cracked, the dasarahas inserted another peg so that uh, they use um, repairing it by putting in wooden pegs and, and patching it up. Eventually the time came when the summoner's original drumhead had disappeared and only a collection of pegs remained. So too, bhikkhus, the same thing will happen with the bhikkhus in the future. When those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, nor lend an ear to them, nor apply their minds to understanding them. And they will not think those teachings should be studied and mastered. But when those discourses that are, are mere poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples. When they are being recited, they will be eager to listen to them, will lend an ear to them, will apply their minds to understand them, and they will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. In this way, because those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. Therefore, because you should train yourselves thus, when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, we will be eager to listen to them. We will lend an ear to them. We will apply our minds to understand them. And we will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. Thus should you train yourselves. Well, this is a, uh, an often quoted sutta, uh, particularly um, when uh, anybody tries to put the teachings into a bit more of a decorated form or, um, <clears throat> or that tries to sort of rephrase the, the, uh, the, the Buddha's words and it's a sort of um, a declaration of, of the worth of the, uh, the plain and simple Pali teachings in particular. Um, I, having written a few poems and done a couple of one or two Buddhist novels myself, I've yeah, I kind of read these words and go, oh dear. <laughs> They're talking about me. <laughs> um, but that's not a bad feeling, because it's good to consider those things. That um, uh, you know, Are the words that you're creating in the world, are they mere poetry, with a sort of sneer on the mere? <laughs> mere poetry. Um, or is there a purpose to it? Is there a meaningful uh, uh, intent behind it? Um, so uh, it's not that poetry is is um, something that's worthless in itself. You know, various um, very worthy monastics in our community have published whole books of, of poetry. Um, 
Ajahn Abhinanda, Ajahn Sujito, others. And so uh, it's not that uh, poetry is, is to be despised on its own, but um, the, uh, the, the intent of this, of, of what the, the value of this particular teaching is that uh, just because something is uh, not particularly um, emotionally moving or is hard to understand or is, um, doesn't immediately make the heart sing, doesn't mean to say that it's without value, um, but uh, uh, sometimes, uh, as many of this, these teachings we've been having in these readings, that the, they, they kind of, the brow furrows and they go, "What the heck is that about?" Um, and it's a, it's a bit of uh, hard work to um, uh, to comprehend, or it can be saying things that you find upsetting or offensive. You know, the the, the things that. Uh, Come across as where the Buddha appears to be nihilistic or, or uh, kind of life negating, and uh, which we've covered in quite a few of the other readings. That do you think? Well, <laughs> I don't want to go to any place where there's no sun, no moon, no stars. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Even if even if he says it's the end of suffering, why can't he say it's ultimate happiness? You know, why just the end of suffering? It's like. Just the other day, somebody came here and said, you know, the Buddha only talked about the end of suffering. He didn't talk about happiness. I said, well... <laughs> <laughs> he did also say, Nibbanang paramang sukhang. You know, the Nibbana is the highest happiness. So, But um, it's, it's good to recognize, well, I don't really like those teachings. You know? And then to say, well, wait a minute. It's because it doesn't appeal to my preferred desire system. <laughs> because it says something that uh, you know, upsets my... my uh, preferred reality, does that mean it's not true? Does it mean it's not meaningful? Does it mean it's something that I, I can't um, uh, put to use? So um, this, uh, this is a, a very significant teaching in that respect. And, and you know, people um, also, when uh, in the forest tradition, it's quite common to be not referring to the suttas at all, just be sort of talking from your own experience. And, and when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho first came to, to teach in this country, um, even members of the monastic community saying, Venerable Sumato, why don't you quote the suttas in your Dhamma talks? Harumph, you know. You know or people, uh, lay people who have been practicing or studying Buddhism for, for years and years, they'd, <coughs> they'd, um, they, they'd come and say, yeah, Venerable Sumato, what's your opinion about the, um, uh, <coughs> the, uh, this, this particular discourse about... Um, uh, Satipatthana, and then and Lumpur would say, "Oh, I don't know it." I mean, not the, not the Satipatthana suit, but you know, the, the, some. Oh, I don't know it. And they sort of give him the give him the look. Like, what? You know, how can how can you? Be, how long have you been a monk? You know, you don't know this. Or, you know, the, um, I'm very inspired by the twenty third verse of the Dhammapada. Um, what do you think of that? Well, I don't know what the twenty third verse of the Dhammapada is. What? Yeah. So there was a. Um, uh, one of the reasons why uh, the few of us spent more time over the years um, studying suttas because what we realized was that in in countries like Thailand or Sri Lanka, when you grow up in these Buddhist countries, that uh, you're just sort of knee-deep, you're surrounded in an atmosphere of Buddhist teachings from your first breath. So uh, school and all the ceremonies and uh, in the family and everywhere, you're hearing the life story of the Buddha and Buddhist teachings, and so it's everywhere. So if you go into monastic life, then you even if you haven't even tried, you've had you've had a whole um, array of different Buddhist teachings all around you and being presented to you in various ways for your whole life. Um, and so that when you come into the to the uh, say a forest monastery and they say practice, 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 you know, put the books aside and just practice. You know, Ajahn Chah would say, yeah, don't read anything for the for your first five years in the monastery. <clears throat> just read you read your own chitta. And so then the Westerners would say, "Okay, right, you shouldn't read. You know, don't don't study the suttas." Pah! And then you, um, you know, you would come into the, this way of life uh, as a Westerner, and then people say, "So, so what are the eight, the eight members, what were eight parts, of the eightfold path?" And you go, um, <laughs> right, "Right, view's the first one." Samadhi, um, <laughs> um, Samar Sankapo, 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 Sankapo. Ah, yes, right. intention, resolution, that's right. And, and then, you know, even there, I, I mean, I was there when these things were, these conversations were happening. And then one, yeah, one monk, who, you know, he'd been a monk for four or five years, said, Well, I can get seven of the eight. That's, that's all right, isn't it, Ajahn? 
<laughs> so a few of us began to realize perhaps we ought to do a little bit of self-education here because uh, you know we very faithfully had inherited the tradition and the way of going about it. You know, your teacher says, don't read anything for, five, for the first five years. Okay. But then you realize that's within a different context. And, and you had people going forth in this country or in you know, other Western monasteries diligently not reading any, any books for, for five years and then really not having a clue about what the Buddha's teaching is apart from what they hear in the Dhamma talks from the elders. And so you're getting you know, very good instruction, but you're not having that kind of input from the life of the Buddha, his you know, life story or the, the essential teachings. So that uh, this particular sutta was, quick, uh, I remember being quoted a few times. <laughs> it's all very well, Venerable Sumato. You know, you give very inspiring, eloquent Dhamma talks, but it's not really Pali Dhamma, you know. And so he would just smile and say, "Well, it's it's what I understand to be true. <laughs> Test it out for yourself. You find out whether it's true or not." You know. And that uh, so he was completely unintimidated, but. Um, that kind of exchange, you could realize, well, actually, yeah, it would be good to do a little bit of investigating and, and studying. So, yeah, <clears throat> it's also why we have a, one of the reasons why we have a library and why, why Lumpur Sumato established this library. It's got you know, 15 or 20,000 books there now, so that uh, these resources are available. So, the next teaching is from, uh, also from the Sangyutta, um, section 55. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. <clears throat> then the lay follower, Dhammadina, together with 500 lay followers, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. Sitting to one side, the lay follower, Dhammadina, then said to the Blessed One, Let the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, exhort us and instruct us in a way that may lead to our welfare and happiness for a long time. Therefore, Dhammadina, you should train yourselves thus. From time to time we will enter and dwell upon those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness. It is in such a way that you should train yourselves. Venerable Sir, it is not easy for us, dwelling in a, uh, in a home crowded with children, enjoying Cassian sandalwood, wearing garlands, scents and cosmetics, receiving gold and silver, from time to time to enter and dwell upon those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that, that are deep, deep in meaning, supramundane, dealing with emptiness. As we are established in the five training rules, let the Blessed One teach us the Dhamma further. Therefore, Dhammadinam, you should train yourselves thus. We will possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha, confirmed, com confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. We will possess the virtues dear to the Noble Ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. It is in such a way that you should train yourselves. Venerable Sir, as to these four factors of stream entry taught by the Blessed One, so those, those four, um, uh, confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, and uh, the um, possession of the Sila, quote-unquote dear to the Noble Ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. Those are the, uh, the four factors of stream entry. <clears throat> Venerable Sir, as to these four factors of stream entry taught by the Blessed One, these things exist in us, and we live in conformity with those things. For, Venerable Sir, we possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. We possess the virtues dear to the Noble Ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. It is a gain for you, Dhammadina. It is well gained by you, Dhammadina. You have declared the fruit of stream entry. So that... Um, <clears throat> Uh, possibly this took place um, shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment because Dhamma talks given at the deer park in uh, Sipatna, just outside of Varanasi, are very rare. Um, so this is one of the, the very few that were, were given there. So this is probably during the, the, um, the weeks that after the Buddha's in, enlightenment and he got there and he was teaching the, the, f um, the uh, first uh, five disciples, his uh, companions, the Panchavagi Bhikkhus. And when he gave the, the discourse on the Four Noble Truths in the Middle Way, the Dhammachaka Sutta, and the discourse on not-self, Anatalakana. So this was probably given around that, that same time. So like, people were coming out of, of um, Baranasi and uh, had, so hearing of this, this group and this teacher. 
uh, out in the deer park and were coming to to receive teachings from him. I'm not certain about that, but it, it's it's very rare to have a teaching set in the the deer park at Isi Patna. And also, did, did the Madinashi ordained later and became one of the Northern nuns? This is a he's a, this is a Dhammadina. Oh. Not Dhammadina. She became yes, yeah, she became an enlightened nun, and her husband was called Visaka. And there's a dialogue between them in the um, uh, questions and answers. So that's a, a different one. This is a lay a lay man, Dhammadina. Easy to make that mistake, Dhammadina. <coughs> One of the most common ways in which the Buddha employed the concept of emptiness in his expositions was in reference to wise consideration of the five khandhas. So that's form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. And again, this is a, a very well-known teaching. This is called the lump of foam. And this is in the um, Khandavaga, the, the connected discourses about the five khandhas. This is section 22 of the um, connected discourses. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ayodhya, on the bank of the, of the river Ganges. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of form, rupa, material form, that there is, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. And it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? So this is talking about, like, on a, on a river, if you get, when the, the, so the water's been swirling up, you get a, a a uh, blob of foam on the surface of the uh, of the river. It's talking about that kind of collection of of, um, of sort of uh, dross that uh, you you get on the surface of the water. Ayodhya is the modern Ayodhya, uh, Ayodhya uh, on the the um, uh, where the near where the river Ganges and the Yamuna come together. Ayodhya. <coughs> and in all of these images that the Buddha gives. There's a quality of, of form. Things have a shape, but they don't have any substance. That's a sort of theme that he, he uses throughout the, the five khandhas, each one. So like with the foam on the water, there's a shape. It looks like a, a lump. It looks kind of solid, but when you touch it, there's, there's, nothing, no, there's nothing solid there. There's just this empty shape. There's an appearance of some, uh, something substantial, but when it's investigated, it's seen as being... that there's, there's form, but no essence, no substance there. Suppose, bhikkhus, that in the autumn, when it's raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. So when rain hits uh, the, a pond or something, then you get a, a bubble of a single bubble of water rising up over the, the surface, and then, and then it bursts. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of feeling there is, Vedana, a bhikkhu investigates it, and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in feeling? Suppose, bhikkhus, that in the last month of the hot season, at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. So a mirage uh, is uh, like in the desert when you, you see uh, an image, uh, um, and it looks uh, as though there's trees or buildings that are nearby, but uh, they're actually very, very far away, that it's just a pattern of light in the air that uh, it appears to be present, but um, the, uh, uh, it's uh, insubstantial. At high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of perception there is, sanya, a bhikkhu investigates it, and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in perception? Suppose, bhikkhus, that a person needing heartwood, so the, the solid wood at the core of a tree, <coughs> uh, 
a person needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. And there they would see the trunk of a large plantain tree, the banana plant. <clears throat> Straight, fresh, without fruit bud core. They would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. So uh, a banana plant, for those of you who are not familiar, it's like a leek or an onion. It's just like layers and layers and layers of leaves. So if you, uh, the point is that you, you peel off the leaves and you, there is no core, there's no heartwood, there's no trunk there. It's just that the shape is formed by the, the, all the leaves uh, la uh, lapping around each other. <clears throat> they would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. As they unrolled the coil, they would not find even softwood, let alone hardwood. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. And it would appear to them to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a plantain tree? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of mental formations there are, sankhara, a bhikkhu investigates them, and they would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in mental formations? Suppose bhikkhus that a conjurer or a conjurer's apprentice would display a magical illusion at the crossroads. So this is where you'd have like street theater, like where you have a crossroads would be a place where people would gather. Many, many suttas you get things that happen at the crossroads. Some people um, set up a butcher's shop or a, a kind of, uh, or like a magic show or a theater performance would just be where the roads cross, that's where you do your performance. So that's where you put your shop, you make your stall. So a conjurer, someone performing magic tricks, uh, with, uh, a person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of consciousness, vijnana there is, a bhikkhu investigates it, and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness? Seeing thus, because the wise noble disciple experiences disenchantment towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, disenchantment towards perception, disenchantment towards mental formations, disenchantment towards consciousness. Experiencing disenchantment, they become dispassionate. Through dispassion, the heart is liberated. When it's liberated, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. They understand, birth is ended, the holy life has been lived out, what had to be done has been done. There's no more coming into any state of being. This is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the Fortunate One, the Teacher, further said this. Form is like a lump of foam, feeling a water bubble. Perception is just a mirage, volitions like a plantain. Consciousness, a magic trick, so says the kinsman of the sun. So Aditya Bandhu uh, is uh, the Pali for kinsman of the sun. It's one of the titles that the Buddha had because his uh, the Sakyans were um, believed to have de descended from uh, the sun god, Aditya. Could you, sorry, 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 you just explain consciousness a bit? I I'm not consciousness? Well, I, mean, I, I assume I kind of know it, but I just want to see. <laughs> well, that's consciousness. <laughs> Assuming we kind of know it, yeah. <laughs> That's, it's the um, so consciousness is uh, you know, in a way it's a, the the best translation is discriminative consciousness, so that the, the 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 capacity of the mind to to know a thing and to define you know a thing as different from other things, so that it, the the five khandas are they're they're rather like a, a spectrum of um, in a way because they're they're all different kinds of consciousness, but you have the rupa form is the coarsest kind, and then feeling is a little bit more refined, then um, uh, perception is a little bit more refined, then uh, mental formations more so, and then consciousness, the, the kind of finest grain. So rather like if you go to a builder's yard, they have the, the sort of broken bricks and sort of hardcore rubble at one end, and then you have the, uh, the gravel, and then you got coarse sand, and then and then sharp sand, and then really really fine sand, so that you got these sort of five heaps. <laughs> the perception is not as refined as mental formation. I would say so. I mean, it's just one way of configuring it. I mean, you they overlap each other, and that there's a, in that um, questions and answer session, 
I think it's between Damadina and uh, Visaka, and Visaka says, perceptions, uh, feeling, perception, and consciousness, are they different or are they the same? Are they conjoined or, dis or disjoined? And then uh, the nun Damadina says, they are conjoined, they're not disjoined, because that which you feel, you perceive, that which you perceive, you cognize. You, know, you, you can't really separate them out. You like, like I was saying, like with the water, you can say that the, you can talk about wetness, you can talk about temperature, you could talk about color, and you, but you can't sort of take the color out, or you can't take the wetness out and put it somewhere else. You know, they're, they're different attributes, but it's the same water. So you, you can't, you, you can, uh, you can say, well, perceiving isn't the same as as feeling, or the 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 rupa, the 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 form isn't the same as consciousness but then you think well but you only know about the form through cognizing it <laughs> yeah that so they they overlap and you can't just sort of hit this is where rupa stops and that's where where feeling begins and that's where feeling stops and perception begins so they rather like the the, the five heaps in the in the builder's yard there they don't have fixed walls between them <laughs> they overlap with each other so then so the Consciousness is, is that um, the discriminative consciousness is uh, in the usual way that it's 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 referred to is the, um, the 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 mind's capacity to distinguish one thing from another that um, <clears throat> and so that it's it's more refined than a, a mental mental formations so it's like operating at a, 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 a more microscopic level if you like but it's when the mind attaches to it or identifies with it, it's that I know or I see or I think. So identification with consciousness is that I feel, I remember, I'm thinking, I'm doing. It's the, the I am attaches to the experience. So, so you might get the shadowy perception, but it's the consciousness that does the attachment. Yeah, so it, it's a, but particularly it's like the, the word vi jnana. So jnana is the knowing part. And V, the V and that, it means something like uh, partial or fragmented or, or um, uh, discriminating, a separat uh, separative consciousness. So that's its job. Is uh, So that awareness is all encompassing. It includes everything. And the, co and the consciousness element is the thing that sort of divides up the little bits and pieces that are within the, the field of awareness. So awareness is the faculty of, of knowing. In, it, in, in itself, which is essentially non-discriminative, and then the the function of a vinyana is to be able to divide up all the the separate pieces. So, if you like, the the awareness is like the power source. It's like the the the, the mind's uh, knowing quality, and then the vinyana is the kind of um, uh, the way that that knowing uh, engages with the sense world and, and, and separates one thing out from another. Okay? So, however one may ponder it or carefully inquire, all appears both void and vacant when it's seen in truth. So, <laughs> when, when the, the, um, the empty nature of the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness, when they're seen... Uh, um, in their true light, then that that is what, in a sense, unifies them. There's a there's a unifying quality of seeing the empty nature of all of them, and so that uh, the, uh, the the in this teaching, it, it's all it's very closely related to the uh, Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on not self, you know, which also talks about the um, the, the 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 uses the format of the five khandhas, and so that uh, in this. That um, the uh, the uh, the Buddha is talking about that disengaging from the mind, sort of uh, getting involved in the particularities or the illusion that the, all these things they seem to have a form, but when you investigate, then there's there's no essence there, there's no substance. That's that's the point of it. And so the um, uh, the experience of of vijnana consciousness. It's like it can. It's it's. It feels like there's a. Um, it's there's definite separate things. 
and that there is a there is a genuine distinction. And so when the mind lets go of attachment to consciousness, then it's letting go of that divisiveness or that that uh, that separation. It's a uh, uh, and that's why we the the in the in say in the forest tradition that um, say the emphasis on awareness itself is uh, in a sense letting go of that discriminative quality of consciousness just to let the mind be the quality of knowing without uh, absorbing into the the discriminations so in a sense it's it's recognizing oh that's just an appearance oh it's just a form the bubble the mirage the conjuring trick the the um the banana tree there's no there's no absolute essence there consciousness is uh, is there's a descriptive uh, quality is it yes in vinyana yeah uh, it doesn't apply to all the uh, not the smell taste thing well they, they those are particular kinds of consciousness so you say eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose tongue, nose consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness. So that the it's like that discriminating faculty operating through each of the each of the senses. And so this awareness, the knowing, uh, is just like seeing, just seeing, and uh, tasting, just tasting without involving a personality. I then identification yeah well also recognizing that um, that the discriminations are only relative so consciousness is based on uh, experience that we have and uh, the thing that we have uh, uh, um, like we learn we exposed to we we absorb exactly yeah so the, the language you speak the the the, uh, the the country you grew up in, the temperature of the the, you know, the, the environment, you know, they all affect that. So that say um, uh, in um, uh, in the Native American languages in the in the Southwest where they um, it's a very desert, uh, it's a very dry desert environment. So in language, like in the hope in the Navajo language, they have dozens and dozens of words for different kinds of brown you know, yellow and brown and red they have many 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 words but they have one word that encompasses blue and green because there's not much <laughs> and so that they're they're uh, but they're distinguishing between all the different kinds of brown because that's where they live so they they perceive things their world is different from your world and my world because we didn't grow up in that environment and so the in that respect, consciousness is very conditioned, and then what we taste as being delicious or awful again depends on what you grew up with, you know what kind of food that you sort of imprinted as oh that's good, like marmite. You know if you grew up in this country, <laughs> you know to to the average Brit, marmite is the essence of life. <laughs> it's inarguably good because. It's it's what most babies in this country are weaned on. The first f food you have after milk <laughs> is ma ma what they call marmite soldiers, little sticks of bread with marmite on. So you imprint on marmite when you're like six months old. Yeah. So marmite is good if you're a Brit, but if you're not a Brit, like living in America, then people come and visit the monastery and they go because marmite would find its way to. <laughs> Our monastery is through some mysterious causal relationship with people um, uh, sending offerings. They go, Do you guys eat this on purpose? <laughs> I mean, is it supposed to taste like this? You know, I just can't believe anyone would would consume marmite, you know, willingly. Yeah. But so the the the, the perceptions are, are heavily conditioned. And um, I, or like when uh, um, Lumpur Sumedho was in the in the navy in Japan, and he he was going back and his ship would go back and forth across the Pacific. And when he was in Japan, and he'd uh, he'd try Japanese food, and uh, and he, there were the, there was this he often talks about it in in, uh, in his teaching. He said so in Japan they 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 like slimy things. <laughs> Do you know the word slimy? The kind of slippery. Um, 
like kinds of, of seaweed or sort of strange cre- you know, sea creatures of some kind <laughs> that have a sort of slimy quality. And they'd say, oh, this is great. And he'd, and he'd have this sort of, really? It's kind of chewy and slimy. And what? But, he, but the people with him, oh, this is great. Isn't this lovely? Oh, we're so happy you came to this restaurant with us. You know? uh, but, and then, but he was reflective at that time as well. He could, oh, that's interesting because they grew up with this to them. This is great. They love it because it's, it's a taste of home. It's a taste of, of you know, your mother's cooking and the, all things good. And he, I'm, just, I'm just not used to this texture and this sort of slimy, crunchy combination. <laughs> There's nothing in American food that would tell you that's good. So uh, the mind develops, uh, uh, it gets habituated. You know the word habituated? So it becomes uh, particular places, the temperature, the, the food, uh, the, you know, the color schemes. They're, they're all heavily conditioned so that uh, the... Uh, if the mind is is conditioned in a particular way, well, like, like with language, you know, when when uh, Europeans go to Thailand and they hear Thai language, um, in Thai language, the uh, the tone of a word, just like in Chinese, you know, the, the tone of a word changes the meaning quite quite radically. So cow, 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 cow. <laughs> you know, in English you say, "Well, what about what we took away?" You know, okay, five cows. You know, <laughs> they're all, but they're all different. You know, one means nine, one means white, one means mountain, one means enter, and um, and one means rice. <laughs> you know, depending on the tone, falling, rising, high tone, low tone, or middle tone, and the, and so that. The vowel sounds or the consonants are just cow, 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 cow. But the tone, cow, 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 they, they make, and they're as different to the Thai ear as if you said vow, now, uh, wow. It's like, well, they're totally, they're obviously totally different words. Vow is not the same as now. But if the tone is different, then in Thailand, you'd, you'd, sit, you'd sort of read the word written down in a book and you'd try and say it and they just look at you like, what? Like you just said, um, <clears throat> you just said something like, Blue Apple Thursday now. <laughs> what? What's he saying? <laughs> what you're trying to say is, Good morning, how are you? <laughs> but it would come across as completely, because the, the tones are, are, are making it into a completely different word. And so uh, <clears throat> the 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 more that we can recognize that our consciousness is conditioned, then we recognize, well, that tastes good to me, but that's not the same for everyone. Well, I can see that that red is arguing with the other red, but other people can't. When uh, Many years ago at Abayagiri Monastery in California, uh, the we had this old garage workshop that was, that was our Dhamma Hall, still is the main Dhamma Hall there. And uh, we were running on a very, very tight budget, so we used to use recycled paint from the local hardware store. So they, they, they take all the, the leftover paint and they mix it up into a big tub, and it costs about 20 cents a gallon or something. It's, it's like very, very cheap. And it's good paint, but you never know what color it's going to be. But you just buy, <laughs> you just buy enough of it. Let's mix it all in together, and you just buy enough of it, and then you, you get the... <coughs> that you, that, that's your new building color. <laughs> so we had we done a refurbishment job on this this uh, dhamma hall on the dhamma hall, and it was a kind of violet gray color, <laughs> sort of pale, sort of gray, like a sort of dove gray color. Quite nice. And then we um, we built these retaining walls. It's on a very very steep hill, so we had to to expand the driveway a bit and make a better turning circle. And so we had to cut away a little bit of the hillside and then put in some retaining walls. And so then the uh, the contractor was under strict instructions, the colour to dye the cement for the retaining walls, you know, because it mustn't argue with the dumb hole, because they're, they're only 10 feet apart from each other. We had a, a very colour-conscious monk staying with us at that time. <laughs> and so they we had this big job you know, pouring the, the concrete with these retaining walls. And then when it when the con- when the when the uh, the concrete set and they took all the forms off, then this poor monk is like, "Oh no!" 
the, 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 the color of the retaining walls is arguing terribly with the Dhamma hall. <laughs> no one else could, could get the same feeling, but he couldn't bear it. He, and he said, no, we've got, we've got to repaint, we've got to repaint, we've got to repaint the Dhamma hall, Ajahn. Sorry. We, we have to, we, we can't, we can't leave it like that. And the rest of us are going like, um, <laughs> well, it's kind, of, it's kind of all right. I mean, it's just like a sort of recycled paint and, and it's a sort of patched up building. But he couldn't, he literally couldn't bear it. And so then he went into the local hardware store and sort of, I think he was even dialoguing with the guys mixing up the recycled paint and, and the, got a new batch of paint and then repainted the whole of the outside of the building and to be honest none of the rest of us could notice any difference <laughs> it was still it was still a sort of dove gray uh, color but it, for him it was like <sighs> thank you thank you so much better and you know it was amazing because the rest of us were like is it different? <laughs> it looks kind of the same, but to him it made all the difference in the world. And so, because his eye was very, very acutely attuned to, to, to color. And so, I was on a, a, um, a teaching a meditation retreat once, and um, this fellow um, was, was on the retreat. And he hadn't done a, a, a retreat, retreat with us before, so I didn't know him very well. And um, <clears throat> oftentimes when people are in, uh, lengthy meditation retreats, their mind starts to wander and starts to get imaginative and uh, <clears throat> so looking for, for things to fantasize about. And um, <clears throat> and he uh, uh, and what he was he said, well, um, yeah, it's a it's a uh, it's a really uh, you know inspiring time, and I really like the, the the teachings and the practice is really really wonderful. But uh, yeah, my mind is really uh, kind of getting getting lost in in. Um, in creating recipes, <laughs> and um, so that's, that's an interesting one. And he was—he was—he was a chef, and it turned out he could actually imagine flavors. He could put a recipe together and taste it, just in the meditation hall. <laughs> and uh, and he'd said, you know, I'd be sitting there thinking, it needs something. It needs something. <laughs> what does it need? The sauce. You know, there's this sauce and. It's got. It's, there's something. I know that pomegranate I found in Cairo back in '79. That was the stuff, and he would sort of select from his memory bank the flavour of this particular kind of pomegranate, and then put it into his sauce. And go, That's it. And but he could literally imagine the mixing ingredients and then taste them. It's solely in his imagination. And I thought, well, that's a first. But because his whole life was built around. You know, he's a chef, and, and his whole life was built around flavors and tastes. He had developed that acute kind of consciousness and that able to, ability to discriminate. And for, uh, you know, that, and that's the karmic result of that kind of conditioning, is that there's that kind of discrimination. So the point of, uh, of this kind of reflection is to be able to recognize, well, that's conditioned. <laughs> that's just formed. That's not... Are absolutely real, and I'm saying, oh, that's unbearable, or that's disgusting, or that's delicious. That's a conditioned perception. It's empty. There's no thing there. That when you, you sort of reach through the the shape of it, there's no essence. The you, the, the bubble is it's just a shape. The mirage is just a pattern of light. And so that um, the mind says, yeah, but it is delicious, or you know that that shouldn't be that way, or that the other. The uh, the red the vermilion red round the devas is arguing with the magenta of the screens. It's, it's they're fighting with each other. I can't bear it. Well, that's you want me to know. Well, that's the that's the perception of this mind. It's not absolutely there. Again, one of the monks at Abhayagiri was totally green red colorblind. So when he learned to drive, he had to remember. Okay, the red ones are on the top. The green one is at the bottom. If the, if, and they both look the same color. You know, brownish. So you know, if the if the if the one on top is is lit, stop. <laughs> if the one on the bottom is lit, go. And he was he was totally uh, red green color blind. So he used often he used to look after the the, the plants and the flowers on the, on the side. <laughs> and so you know, sometimes you come in and you go, wow. <laughs> and he said, what did I do? <laughs> 
<laughs> and he had you know some kind of uh, um, like bright red leaves and something and uh, and, the, and a you know, bright green uh, sort of bright red flowers and sort of and, uh, luminous green leaves and wow that's pretty bright and he'd have to say what what what, what is, you know, what's there because he couldn't see it and he had an uncle who was totally colorblind he had no no color vision at all so is the color really there or is it not you know, it's it's subjective, so they're re- recollecting the subjective nature of experience. That's the the, the essence of it, and oh, this is my mind's version of the world. This is not the world. This is this is a world. <laughs> this this mind's representation of the world. That's that's what we have here. So anyway, to continue. Uh, so yes. Can you explain the awareness that you are seeing, the knowing, <laughs> how it comes to know? Uh, that's its job. So it's it's a that that um, fundamental faculty of of mind is is knowing. So it's not based on the past uh, experience. No, no. It's, it's 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 so awareness is identical for you know, all beings that are aware. And then the. The khandas is what that uh, that it's like it's like electricity you know it's like whether it comes through a light bulb or a, a, a fire or a microphone it's it's the so awareness is the kind of mind power source <laughs> you can reflect on it. So the, the the when we talk about the the Buddha wisdom. So the, the Dhamma is the fundamental nature of things, and Buddha is the primary activity of Dhamma. Buddha arises from the Dhamma. That awareness is the primary function of of Dhamma. So if we focus on awareness, we are actually back to our own nature, to our own, own Buddha. That's what I would say, yes. So does it mean that uh, we have the Buddha nature then? You can. Uh, it depends who you talk to. <laughs> I would say that's what Buddha nature means. So in the, in the Thai language, they use this word puru, which is very helpfully both means the quality of awareness, and it's also a term used to refer to the Buddha. So they, this use the, the same. So that 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 quality of the awake mind is that's the same as the the mind of the Buddha. It's the same awareness. That every every being it functions, but it fun- it's functioning through the 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 agency or the the the, um, the karmic formation of a particular life, like sister Tejasas. You're the you're the, the outlet through you know through which that that uh, aware function operates. So then it's experienced through the particular formations that comprise this particular life. And that the the more that the mind is unattached uh, and not identified with the body, with the personality, with personal histories, then the more there's a natural affinity with all other beings. The more the mind is obsessed with my thoughts, my feelings, my body, my preferences, my likes, you know, what what I call I call right, what I call wrong, then the more that I am divided off from everything else. So that's why you know, ignorance is the cause of, of suffering and Awakening is a cause of of liberation and peace. And so, <laughs> just one more. Huh? Just one more. Okay. <laughs> I'll I'll hold you to that. <laughs> what I was saying that uh, we see we see just purely seeing we taste just purely tasting. Is this part of awareness too? Well, that's what helps to clarify the awareness. So when the mind reflects, when you have that, that kind of yoniso manasikara, that wise reflection, like, oh, this is just tasting. This is the experience of slimy, crunchy, something I don't know what the name of is. It's like this. So this is what they call marmite. It's like this. So that, that it's the, the mind that knows, oh, this is just tasting. This is it's recognizing there's a particular pattern of experience, a pattern of consciousness happening in the sort of taste realm that it forms like this. And so that it's, oh, oh, this is just tasting. Ah. So then the, the point of that kind of reflection is that, oh, 
it's like seeing that behind that shape there's 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 no essence there's no fundamental substance and it, it, in the meditation it get it's very it get very interesting because you can see oh this is painful but this pain isn't actually painful or well, there's a sound but the sound isn't really a sound it's it's an experience oh <laughs> yeah, a thought that it's the the mind is able to recognize oh these are just the mind representing a sound, a feeling, a sensation, and it puts it together and says, that's hearing, that's tasting, this is feeling, this is the weight of the body, this is the temperature of the room. It kind of puts it all together and says, this is reality, but it's all just patterns of, of uh, consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, mind consciousness. And so these kind of reflections, oh, it's just hearing, oh, it's just thinking, oh, it's just wanting, oh, it's just not wanting, oh. It's just that. So then, in that recognition, it's just a, you know, a pattern of, of experience. There's, there's a, a, a liberating quality to that. Oh, uh, the mind is aware of that. So, um, going back to what you were saying the other day about um, form within space and emptiness. Would you say that um, awareness is a bit like the emptiness, but you know the, the sort of shapes and all the discrimination that takes place is like the form within that background? Yeah, you can like the the so the experience of space, like material space outside or, or mental space, it's like a um, a representation of the quality of awareness. Like a, se- a sensory representation of the quality of awareness, so that then that uh, the mind can know uh, a sensation, it can know a sound, it can know a thought, so that those arise within, you could say, within the space of the mind. And then the, the more that the mind is free from biases and preferences and attachments, then the more that space can accommodate everything. It's impartial. And is it ever possible to be aware of awareness if that is the space or the emptiness? You can, well, that's what uh, the word apperception that Lumpur Sameda would use um, from time to time to know that you know. You can't really make awareness an object. It's like that, he would use that idea of looking for your own eyes. I'm looking for my eyes. Have you seen them? <laughs> They must be around here somewhere because I can see, but I, I can't. I can't see them. Or like uh, Lumpur Chah uh, was quoting him saying, "You're riding a horse, looking for the horse." So you can be aware. You can the mind can can know that it knows, but you can't really make awareness into an object. It's like that's why the, this language, like the island that you cannot go beyond, you know, it's, it's a strange image. You know, if it's an island, it's supposed to have water all around it. Somehow you can't go beyond it. <laughs> An island that you cannot go beyond. That that is the the quality of awareness. That that that's the back wall of experience. Sorry, so can I ask one more? So basically, can you only ever access um, emptiness through looking at you know what you were saying, like in the forest sangha tradition, where you're looking at form coming and going and so on, and seeing the emptiness. There, because you just can't see emptiness because it's like looking through your own eyes. <coughs> How it is? I didn't follow that. Oh, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> 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 well, you, you, there is one. That's what I mean. Different formulations work for different people. So that for some somebody, the emptiness language it might just fall completely flat. It's like just doesn't doesn't have any traction it's like the, it just sort of slides right through and I don't know what that's about but then the, maybe the, the language about change or you know, uncertainty is like oh right okay I get that that's meaningful or it might be um, that uh, the the um, language about uh, letting go of subject and object like, oh, okay I can, that, that makes sense so the different wordings work for different people but the point is not trying to find the right word, the point is the change of heart that comes from that. And so, 
if the 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 point of the the emptiness language, and we were, and we we're talking about how in Theravada the southern Buddhist teachings they use it as a very relative term. So it's like empty of what? Like <clears throat> you can say well, the Dhamma is empty, empty of self um, and what belongs to self, but but um, and. <clears throat> But you know that term of of, of emptiness is, is empty of something. You know, it's it's a comparative term if you think about it. And so, the the point is that these kind of reflections help the mind to see where it's making assumptions. So that to reflect on emptiness, it's it's kind of it's aimed at the way the mind creates things. This book, these readings, it's a thing. So that the mind is making it into a, a solid, permanent thing, and then and to reflect on emptiness is to say, "Well, it's not the whole story. It's yeah, there's an appearance, um, but everything that that say makes up this book, you know, the the color, the texture, the sound, that that we put those together and go hearing, feeling, seeing, and the mind says book, <laughs> because this is a mind is conditioned to English language." But that's a collection of experiences. That each one of those feeling is empty, the sound is empty, the color is empty, and so that then, all oh, right, yeah, the mind is really making this into a solid thing. Actually, it's just a collection of mental events arising, passing away, that are known in this in in, in this awareness. And it seems like I am holding this book on the personal or conventional level, but. The, the whole experience is, is just a, uh, in and of itself. There's no permanent, solid, actual substance there. You know, the, the four elements, the earth, water, fire and wind, the aspects of attributes of the, of the physical world, they function according to their own laws. There's laws of causality, so that it's highly unlikely that this book will spontaneously combust because of the general laws of nature. It's highly unlikely that you'll float up into the air, just because of the laws of nature. Similarly, the laws of how the mind works, how thoughts work, how memory and imagination work, that they generally function according... Those laws persist, because they're also part of the, the conditioned realm. So when you say things are empty, they also, they're also they empty of permanent substance, but they're, um, <coughs> they, uh, they, those events have relationships to each other. They, they function according to natural laws. They're what are called the niyamas. So <clears throat> things just don't happen in a totally random way. There's laws of, of cause and effect that, that are functioning. But when every event is explored, then it's recognized, oh look, <laughs> the mind creates that as a solid, permanent thing. But that's not the whole story. Aha! So that it's to the reflections and emptiness are to counteract that thing-making habit, which is really useful. I mean, that's how our ancestors that didn't create things got eaten by the tigers, and fell off cliffs, or <laughs> didn't look after their illnesses. So that self-preservation and the instincts of looking after the body and staying alive, those are, that's how we function as, as human beings. That's what keeps us alive. So those... Those habits are important aspects of nature, but when each each habit is explored, then we're able to see through those instinctual. This is good. That's bad. I like. I don't like. This is mine. That's yours. It can see through all those um, instinctual or conditioned processes, and to recognize, oh look at that. This is actually uh, a succession of, of mental events, patterns of consciousness arising, passing away. That's that's what's happening here. And so insight meditation, vipassana, is very much around that uh, looking at the nature of experience itself. And, uh, and when you're in an environment where you're not having to protect yourself from attack, you're, someone else is cooking all the food, you know, you're around people who are polite and friendly and kind and benign. So it's a very safe environment. You don't have to be absorbing into the self-preservative uh, reflexes. So there's enough space to, to look at the nature of, of experience itself. And then the mind can really see clearly, oh, look at that. 
I call that good, but it's not intrinsically good. I call that bad, it's not intrinsically bad. It's just the mind names it as that, aho. And in that aho, <laughs> there's, a, there's a freeing, there's a liberating. And it enables the mind to, to then uh, reshape the way that it perceives others. It, it recognizes, well, that's just liking, or that's just disliking, or that's just what I call a, a friend or someone I, I, I don't know. That's, that's not the whole story. So it, it helps the heart to be far more attuned and unbiased in terms of relating to the world and your own body, your own personality, such like. So to continue, over and over again and throughout the Buddhist world, this collection of images appears as a vivid metaphor for the realm of mind and body. And so there's a couple of passages from the Dhammapada. First uh, verse 46. Knowing the body as false as foam, knowing it as a hazy mirage, knowing the barb in Mara's flowers, thus the wise elude death's lord. And verse 170 from the Dhammapada. They who look upon the world as unstable, insubstantial, as bubble, mirage, and illusion, they're the ones death cannot find. These verses also bring to mind the Buddha's advice to Moggaraja, quoted in chapter 11, which you'll, you'll remember. Um, <coughs> Moggaraja asked the Buddha, how, do you, how does one view the world so as not to be seen by death's king? So how do you avoid the king of death? How do you look at the world to avoid the king of death? And the Buddha replied, View the world, Moggaraja, as empty, always mindful to have removed any view about self. This way, one is above and beyond death. This is how one views the world so as not to be seen by death's king. These simple instructions point out again and again that it is through wise contemplation and investigation of all experience and seeing its essential emptiness that the heart is released from its bondage to the cycles of death and rebirth. These teachings are of such universality and potency that they are amongst the most widely studied and practiced throughout the Buddhist tradition. And so the next uh, passage is from the Vajra Sutra from the Northern Buddhist tradition. So this is a... a Translation of it, this is the Diamond Sutra, translated by Red Pine, who is an American uh, scholar of Chinese and um, a practitioner. Subhuti. Someone might fill measureless asankayas of world systems. An asankaya is an incalculable number. <laughs> As, uh, fill measureless asankayas of world systems with the seven precious gems and give them as a gift. But if a good man or a good woman who has resolved their heart on Bodhi were to take from this sutra even as few as four lines of verse and receive, hold, read, recite, and extensively explain them for others, their blessings would surpass the others. So to make uh, more merit, more uh, blessings than um, if you filled incalculable numbers of universes with precious, uh, precious gems and offer them um, to... Uh, even more meritorious would be to explain and teach and recite four verses of the Diamond Sutra. How should it be explained to others? With no grasping at marks, thus, thus, unmoving. And why? All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. So that's from chapter 32 of the Diamond Sutra. And uh, it's already gone past seven o'clock, and so, uh, or maybe we can just have a few readings, just finish this off. Along with a similarity of imagery, like uh, dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, dewdrops, and a lightning flash, like the lump of foam, the water bubble, the um, the, uh, uh, the mirage, the, the banana tree, and the conjuring trick. Along with a similarity of imagery, it's also interesting to note that the above scripture of the northern tradition implies a method of comparison very close to that found in many Pali suttas. For example, in the Velama Sutta, which is in uh, the Book of the Nines, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Numerical Discourses, the Buddha describes a previous existence wherein he made an offering of incalculable richness. However, after a long list of increasingly beneficial actions, he states, 
so that it starts off saying, uh, when I was uh, in the previous life, I was a rich Brahmin of Velama, and I, I gave 84,000 gold pots filled with silver, 84,000 silver pots filled with gold, uh, t- and 10,000 horses, 10,000 elephants, and you know, these uh, huge offering that this Brahmin made. That's how it starts out. And even more meritorious is to practice loving-kindness for the time it takes to milk a cow. <laughs> and then finally, he says, uh, after this long list of increasingly beneficial actions, he states that it would, be, it would be more fruitful than all the actions described there, quote, to sustain the insight into impermanence for merely as long as a finger snap. So thus, as in the Vajra Sutra quotation, clearly delineating wisdom as the most precious commodity of all. So that uh, uh, filling the entire universe with precious jewels, incalculable numbers of universes with precious jewels and offering them, it's more meritorious to explain and to uh, to uh, reflect on four lines of the uh, Diamond Sutra, and or, or to uh, sustain the insight into impermanence. It's more meritorious than giving eighty-four thousand gold pots filled with silver, eighty-four thousand silver pots filled with gold, you know, billions and billions of billions of pounds worth of offerings. It's more meritorious to have insight into Anicca for a finger snap. Cheap too. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, there's uh, a few um, readings from the, the Heart Sutra and also from the Diamond Sutra that I, would, I was going to uh, read out. So I'll leave them for tomorrow, for all still alive. And I'll finish there for today. <laughs>